Wow, go down there, turn on the new Liz Lemon charm, a little Julia Roberts laugh. <laughs> What's in your teeth? Corn. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong. I'm Julio. And I'm Alex. Here on the show, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. For the first half of each episode, Contrarians Corner, we trash the fresh red tomatoes and praise the rotten green splotches, making our case any way we can. The aptly titled Real Talk serves as the second half of each episode. This is where we discuss our true feelings on the movie we're covering. For more information on our podcast and to browse past episodes, you can head over to our website, wearethecontrarians.com. From there, you can also access our patron and merchandise, because capitalism. If you enjoy our attempts at comedic film discussions, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, that's what social media is for. You can find us on most platforms as at Contrarian Prime. You can also see what we look like if you go to youtube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, and you can contact us by email at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that covers it. Then it's time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Aaron Brockovich. Welcome back to the Contrarians. I'm Alex. Beautiful introduction just a second ago was by Julio here today to talk about Aaron Brockovich, the 2000 uh, Awards and Critical Darling starring... I mean, this is peak Julia Roberts, right? This is even more so than Pretty Woman because she it's, won it's the peakest, her, the peak, the mountaintop, the zenith. This is Mecca Roberts. Uh, <laughs> it was all downhill from here. <laughs> I, I think she's doing all right, but yeah, uh, an eighty-five percenter on Rotten Tomatoes got that beautiful certified fresh uh, iconography alongside with it, based on hundred and fifty reviews. A quarter of a million audience score reviews, so factored into 81%. So uh, the critics and the audience saw it pretty paralleled. Steven Soderbergh in a very not Soderbergh movie. What is a Soderbergh movie, though? I was thinking that as I was watching this this tale of a single mom against the system. I'm like, well, he. I mean, he always, well, he not always, but he became known as the supercast director, you know, be it the oceans movies, traffic, oh. <laughs> uh, contagion, uh, even haywire. Like he would just load these casts so the, up. The genre, uh, Wes Anderson. There you go. But it, it doesn't even really look like a Soderbergh. Soderbergh movies are usually very sleek and, um, oftentimes cold. And this is like yellow. <laughs> That's yes. Very, <laughs> Very sepia tone, but also just kind of um, what's what's like a really pretentious way. It feels southern fried, you know. That's what it. <laughs> you get that chicken fried Julia Roberts in this one. Yeah, even though it's uh, in it's L.A. right where they're at. So yeah, Hinkley, California. Yeah, I'm sure you can get some deep fried goodness, and I'm sure there's some hillbillies in California. So it just it feels very uh, sun faded. There you go. It's that, very that's toasty. A it is very toasty and steamy is Julia Roberts, uh, for sure. A biographical legal drama directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by uh, Suzanne Grant. Are we familiar with Miss Grant? Looks like she also wrote Ever After with Drew Barrymore, 28 yep. Days. She's been in the twice, Alex, with Ever After. Wait, did we do Ever After? Yeah, we did. Yeah. No, and we didn't. Yeah, we did. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> Must have been a long time ago. It's been a while, but it's in, that's the one with Da Vinci, right? Like Da Vinci shows up at some point. Okay, yeah. Reading through the cast and Patrick Godfrey is Leonardo Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That that must have been like early, early days. And then Catch and Release. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Directed that one. Man, coming for the trifecta here, Santa Grant. She's like, I'm too busy. Soderbergh, you mind just <laughs> taking care of this while I write the next big hit? And I'm sure I made the joke about it when we did one of those movies that she wrote the soloist, and I'm not going to hold that against her. Everybody's got to pay the mortgage, Alex. <laughs> Released on March 17th of 2000, a budget of $52 million, of which Julie Roberts was paid over 20. So 
girl got paid. I mean, she's in every frame of this movie, Alex. A breathtaking 256 million in box office return. Well, I hope Susanna Grant got got a good percentage of that. Did you see this when it came out? Yes. I mean, I saw it in theaters, but not when it came out. I think I watched it after it got nominated, probably. You know, one of those that were like, all right, well, I got to watch it now because Julia Roberts may win an Oscar. And then she did. So I don't remember. I'm sure we'll talk about this in the second half of the show, but I don't remember who she was up against. So I couldn't even tell you if I was rooting for her or not. I just know I watched this. It's as part of, you know, it's it's film history now. It's the mm-hmm. movie that got the, uh, Julia Roberts an Oscar. That's right. Uh, when I was like 14 or, f- yeah, 14 or 15, uh, I rented this from the Kyle Texas Library because I had somehow got in my head that Julia Roberts is naked in this movie. Um, and, you know, when you're that young, you just boobs are like really cool. And the <laughs> idea of them is very tantalizing. And, you know, my my taste in women hadn't been refined at that point. But Julia Roberts, obviously a, a, a very pretty young woman. So I was like, all right. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're like, I, my taste in women hadn't, you know, I was still just settling for Julia Roberts. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, like, just the idea of any of it was fine. I wasn't settling for anybody. But, you know, me now is... Very, you, you know what my tastes are. I think most listeners know where uh, my loyalties lie. But the point is, I, I rented this from the library and I was like, all right, I'm going to see Julia Roberts naked. And then I just sat there for two hours waiting for Julia Roberts to get naked and it never happened. Uh, but at the end, when it was over, you, you wiped away a tear. So the the joke was on me. That That was still like high speed internet was just coming along uh, at that point. And so it was still in the dial-up days where someone could say something and you just believe it. I mean, that obviously still happens on the internet, but you know, it was way more like, uh, "Oh, my uncle told me this." And, you know, <laughs> this, this happens in this, and so. And Seth Rogen's website—it wasn't live yet, so you can fleshofthestars.com. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Julia Roberts, who is very pretty in this movie, and one of the things we'll talk about in the second half of this is. Uh, her unmistakable look. All right, Julio, 85% certified fresh on the old RT. And as we mentioned, got Julia Roberts her Academy Award. This motherfucker was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Screenplay. And again, Susanna Grant was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is the one I just wrote to get Soderbergh off my back. He, he, he was getting restless. Albert Finney was like, do I have to go? <laughs> And Aaron Aker was like, I'll go. <laughs> Can I keep my mustache? <laughs> uh, only one best actress, but still, I mean, back when the Academy Awards meant something, there were only five best picture nominees. It got nominated alongside uh, Titans of the Day. So we'll we'll circle back to that in the second half. 85% Julio, as I just uh, stressed how successful this was critically. What, uh, what quotes did you pull? What were critics saying uh, have been or are saying about Aaron Brockovich. Okay. I waded through the sea of fresh tomatoes on the Run Tomatoes website. There's a handful of fresh quotes, starting with Tim Brayton from Antagony and Ecstasy, who says, A shining example of everything promising about American movie making as it entered the 21st century. Yeah, that was a, that was a big thing. Like the movies in 2000 of, you know, The Matrix was the movie that was going to take us into the 21st century. Uh-huh. And then in 2000, it's like, oh. What a way to kick off the new millennium. Da, 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 da. Julia Roberts and Steven Soderbergh setting the tone for, for what women are supposed to be doing in the 21st century. <laughs> I wish the cover of Entertainment Weekly would have had the two of them dressed like Trinity and Neo on it. <laughs> Welcome to the future. <laughs> Aaron Brockovich enters the Matrix. Um, Got to combine the next two, Alex. Uh, Kiva Stratton from Rescue Australia says Julia Roberts is masterful and Jeffrey Weshoff from Northwest Herald Crystal Lake Illinois says few critics have been as skeptical of Julia Roberts's talents as I but Aaron Brockovich has won me over my question is how if you don't like Julia Roberts what in Aaron Brockovich would make you like her because she's just Julia Roberts am I wrong for where are we at two lines 
into my notes, it just says, oh, this is just going to be the Julia Roberts show, even because I'd only seen it the one time before 20 <laughs> years ago. But um, yeah, this is pure unadulterated Julia Roberts, except she doesn't have uh, the big moment where she laughs. That's all that's missing. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, that's what got her the Oscar. She she made it through an entire movie without the big laugh. The big mouthy laugh that she does that Tina Fey so incredibly replicated on 30 Rock. Uh, yeah, it's it's the one movie where she uh, doesn't hit that. Jeffrey, maybe that's what Jeffrey was missing. He's like he likes that she didn't laugh in this one. Uh, David Germain from the Associated Press says Roberts has never been better as she glares and swears her way through the movie. And this was something I kept thinking uh, as I was watching Aaron Brockovich. Alex, has Julia Roberts played that type of character anywhere else where she just says fuck this and fuck that and? I can't remember, is she as salacious as the others in Closer? Ah, aha. Probably. (laughs) That movie earns its R rating, uh, and it's all dialogue, so probably. But yeah, that's that's like an immediate point to make here is the uh, hypocrisy. Tarantino at this point in time, was vilified for his movies featuring record amounts of swearing. But Julia Roberts gets to say, fuck shit, balls, ass, bitch, like all <laughs> she wants in this. And it's it's empowering. She's like Colin Firth in uh, The King's Speech. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's okay, because th- the problem is that with Tarantino, it's just like a bunch of dudes saying it. And they, they, dudes get to swear all the time in every movie. Julia Roberts, we just said it, unless it's closer... A dude uh, got to say, you know, Clark Gable got to say the first swear word in movies. So, you know, they they owe Julia Roberts some fucking shits, yeah. some goddamns. Gable Gable called it. I was like, ah, ah, called it. You can't have it. Men are gonna have it for the next hundred years. And then Julia Roberts took the flag. Uh, I'm gonna close with Philip Wunsch from the Dallas Morning News. Who says, it's a victory for Julia Roberts, co-star Albert Finney, and director Steven Soderbergh. It's also a victory for the audience. Uh, what about Aaron Eckert? Is it a victory for him? It's something. It's a paycheck for Aaron Eckert. <laughs> what was Aaron Eckert doing before he was Two-Face, Alex? Was he just sitting around? He's being leather daddy in this thing. <laughs> well, leather stepdaddy. Hey, uh, he <laughs> hot shots part do slaughter of the innocents in the company of men, your friends and neighbors, which is a fascinating movie. I'd witness her say good, but fascinating Thursday, Molly and any given Sunday were his run coming into this. And then he did a lot <laughs> before <laughs> the dark night. I'm just trying to make a living, man. I'm serious. If you need someone to look after your kids, at, you know, when they're at school or after school or whatever, I don't have a job now. So that concludes the quotes. So now it's time to go into Contrarian's Corner proper. All right. So this movie is, of course, based on the life and times of Aaron Brockovich, Erin uh, Brockovich Ellis. And she claimed that the film was 98 to 99 percent accurate. So we're not going to worry about really comparing and contrasting her true life story with this. Is that okay with you, Julio? That's okay with me, except I call bullshit. There is no way that this movie... I looked just like Julia Roberts. (laughs) Yes, I looked just like Julia Roberts. And yes, I did date a guy that was basically an angel and rode a motorcycle and was unemployed and had all the time in his life to take care of my kids. Yeah, I'm sure that happened. There's no way. And she sold the rights to her story to Universal Pictures for a reported $100,000. Why didn't she just give it away? She, she ends the movie with the gazillion dollars. <laughs> and last bit here on the shoot, Aaron Brockovich. She's in the movie, Julio. She uh, plays the waitress at the diner in the beginning when um, <laughs> Julia Roberts takes her kids there after that cockroach runs across the kitchen. That's really funny because I I thought I didn't even make a note of it because it did pan out. But I thought that that waitress was looking at them weird. And I thought that we were heading towards a scene where the waitress was going to make a, a comment about Julia Roberts's parenting. 
Like, are you sure these kids should be having the cheeseburger deluxe? Shouldn't they be eating, I don't know, a salad? And and then Julia Roberts was going to get sassy. and But no, it didn't happen. It was just, oh, so it was just a look. It, it was, there was nothing that, let, oh, now I know. The look was, was her looking at herself in the mirror, in the Hollywood mirror. What do you think about the real Aaron Brockovich's uh, acting chops? I mean, she didn't really have much to flex with, so <laughs> I can't I can't comment. Uh, kick off Universal and Columbia signatures. We get the title card based on a true story. How does that work these days? If a movie's based on a true story, do they wait till the end? Do they just put it on the poster? Do they tell you? Uh, I know, like Pain and Gain, hilariously uses that as like a trope throughout the movie, but. <laughs> That was like uh, for a while the go-to, right? It was the title card at the beginning, based on a true story, and then it, it would just go means into it. We want awards. Based on a yes. true story already means award bait. Like, please give us an Oscar. It it worked on this one. Uh, I think that uh, the real like brave filmmakers wait until the very end. Like they don't use it for marketing. They, they just let you watch a movie and then they hit you with it as the end credits are about to roll. Like by the way, this you watched. This was real. <laughs> <laughs> or at least parts of it were real. I always feel it's a cheap device when they put it at the beginning of the movie because they're, it's almost like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like, oh, well, you know, you can't really criticize the movie because it really happened. So even if you yeah. think that, oh, there's no way that this this woman triumphed over this corporation, don't question it. It's based on a true story. We just told you. We warned you at the beginning. So Were you not listening? Off. Were you not reading? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shut up and enjoy. <laughs> she's at a job interview. She just rambles, completely tanks the job interview. She's talking about things that aren't related to the job. Uh, my first note after that says she's sassy and cool because uh, she obviously has a bit of swagger and edge to her. And then my next note says this does not feel like a Sodes movie. So I, I noticed that early. <laughs> uh, See, you and I, I judge Soderbergh differently because and I get it. I get what you're saying. You know, you're right. When you think of him, it's like, oh, he usually brings all these like all-star casts and and he just yeah, he is kind of it's like a classic filmmaker. It's measured in a way that his movies are usually real sleek and like the transitions are really slick and this one's just kind of like a pot of coffee that's just been on all day. The old coffee that Albert Finney drinks the following morning. <laughs> I when I think of a Soderbergh I think of a filmmaker that just kind of makes movies with no rhyme or reason. You know what I mean? Like, today I feel like making a heist movie, so I'm going to make Ocean's Eleven. But tomorrow I'm going to feel like making a biopic, so I'm going to make that uh, uh, Liberace biopic for HBO. And the next day, you know what? That Gina Carano actress... (laughs) She needs a vehicle, so let's let's make an action movie for her. And there's just there's no through line, you know. And I guess that that works whenever the movies are exceptionally made. But then when you get a movie that's kind of unremarkable, you're like, what is this? <laughs> it kind of exposes that Soderbergh doesn't really have much as far as of a of, of an auteur vision, right? Like especially when you when did he start doing the the, the all star cast thing? I mean, it wasn't. Maybe after Ocean's Eleven, right? Before that, I don't think he had the clout. Uh, I mean, you can make an argument for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But those were not stars at the time. Like, nobody knew who those four people were. People knew who James Spader was. Yeah, but he wasn't James Spader. You know, it was like... Touche. You can't can't seriously compare, like, James Spader, Andy McDowell, um, is it Laura Giacomo? And uh, Peter... Gallagher. Yeah, I was gonna, eyebrows. And Peter Gallagher with like Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Matt Damon, <laughs> Julia Roberts. <laughs> there is a galaxy of, of, you know, distance in between like their star levels back then and now and, you know, or at the time that Ocean's Eleven was, was made. I, well, I think of course, that- the interesting thing is that Traffic came out the same year and that was also directed by Steven Soderbergh. And so traffic, you could make the argument, is where he began the the mega ensemble. I get Julia Roberts an Oscar. Who wants to come and play? Who wants to be next? It's like Tarantino after he revived Travolta's career. You, Eric Foreman from that 70s show. You want a piece of this? Get in here. (laughs) Mike Douglas? Retired? I don't think so. Come in. Dennis Quaid? Welcome. Welcome aboard. Luis Guzman? (laughs) 
Are you the guy from uh, The Usual Suspects? What is it? Del Toro? Benicio? Sure. Come in. So Aaron Brockovich starts by an unemployed single mother of three who has recently been injured in a traffic accident with a doctor and is suing him. Her lawyer, Ed Masri, this, of course, played by Albert Finney, uh, expects to win. But Aaron's explosive courtroom behavior under cross-examination loses her the case, and Ed will not return her phone calls afterwards. One day, he arrives to work to find her in the office, apparently working. She says that he told her things would work out, and they did not, and that she needed a job. Ed takes pity on Aaron, and she gets paid for a job at the office. Is, is that what happens? He takes pity on her? Because it looked a lot like she just bullied him into giving her a job. Bullying works, man. She she carried her way into a decent uh, job at a firm that was not hiring. Is that really what happened? 90% real Aaron Brockovich? I don't buy it. <laughs> 98%. 98 no, to 99%. But also, okay, how long did it take you, Alex, to turn on Aaron Brockovich? I know you described her as sassy and edgy and, you know, a, a positive <laughs> take on, on the Aaron Brockovich character. But if you watch this movie like I did, she slowly started revealing how unpleasant she was of a person. Like, she's really uh, ungrateful and very uh, quick to anger. She doesn't have patience. She She's constantly... Like she lucks out in the way that that things eventually work out for her, but but she is not. Even though the movie tries to sell her to you as a people person, I think that half the movie she's not being a people person. She's just being very abrasive and very just mean spirited towards people that are actually on her side. So it didn't take long for me to be like, uh, okay, this is just too much. This is can we hang out with like other people? <laughs> can Albert Finney hire somebody else? We do get to hang out with another character as Aaron Eckhart enters Aaron Brockovich. Uh, not literally yet, but the the film. <laughs> uh, my note just says it's all caps. Ha 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 ha! Look at this fucker because we see he's fucking two. He's a Harvey Dent man, and he's also like. Thank you for smoking. Uh, no reservations. What are some other movies? Uh, even um, uh, the De Palma. What is it? Uh, Black Dahlia. You know, blonde, good looking Aaron Eckhart. And this, he's got his handlebar mustache and he's supposed to look all intimidating. And he's this big, bad biker. And I was just I, I laughed. I just I howled when he entered the frame. And uh, of course, all I could think about was Hamlet, too, because that's one of the best jokes in that movie is the uh, main character, Steve Coogan. Um, he the reason he writes Hamlet too is because the drama department's losing its funding because all he do- all he does is just put on dramatic recreations of Hollywood movies and one of them's Aaron Brockovich. It's like one of the first scenes <laughs> in the movie. It's these two like really bad drama high school students verbatim reenacting the scene, and so tainted's the wrong word, but it's a scene that like I'll never be able to take seriously again. Uh, well, you can't take it seriously anyway, Alex. I was about to say, I, I, even without that, Aaron Eckhart and his mustache and his rat tail and his uh, do-rag he has on, I'm just like, come on, man. Well, and his impossible convenience, I guess, to the There's to the no edge to him. He's just like Prince Charming. Why the hell do you want to watch my kids? I like kids. Right. Yeah, I do. I like hanging out with them. You know, they keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, he's there to to basically solve Aaron's problems. And let's let's say I believe Aaron, the real Aaron Brockovich, that ninety eight percent of of this movie is true. I I really hope that we that me and her like agree that that two percent that's fake is the Aaron Eckert character because th- it doesn't make sense, right? He's a he was a composite character. <laughs> yeah, from from every every guy that she ever wished she dated, maybe like yeah. he doesn't work, but he has money. And and he's great with kids, and because he doesn't work, he has all the time in the world to watch over her kids. He's reliable. He fixes her sink. He's always taking care of things. He waits around forever, even though she's treating him like shit. It takes him, I don't know, three quarters of the movie to finally have enough of her ignoring him. It's uh, He's a saint, basically. He doesn't exist. This person does not exist. In, but Soderbergh is like, look. We have to move the movie forward, and the story doesn't start unless she finds somebody to take care of her kids. So, pencil in Aaron Eckert with a mustache. Yeah, and he quickly becomes a central part of it with watching her kids because her babysitter drops her kids off at home while she's not there. 
and he ends up just taking care of him. She gets home and she's obviously understandably distraught. She recovers real quick, though, and is immediately taken by his charm and everything's all right. He's going to watch the kids. But she tells him this isn't going to get you laid. How'd that work out for you? (laughs) Uh, She's given files for a real estate case where the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, PG&E, is offering to purchase the home of Donna Jensen, a resident of Hinckley, California. Aaron is surprised to see medical records in the file and visits Donna, who explains that she has simply kept all her PG&E correspondence together. Donna appreciates PG&E's help. She's had several tumors and her husband has Hodgkin's lymphoma. But PG&E has always supplied a doctor at their own expense. Aaron asks, why would they do that? And Donna replies, because of the chromium. She shows up and, and I welcomed her with open arms because I was like, finally, the plot is starting. <laughs> we're like 30 minutes into the movie. And we're like, is this just about Julia Roberts being a, a terrible uh what is she? Is she a legal assistant at Albert Finney's uh, law firm? I don't know. She's not great I there. I guess, but she has no you know, education or actual expertise. Yeah, I don't know. But she's she's not great at her job. She's terrible as a sort of girlfriend. She, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to judge, but I think she could be doing better as a mom. I mean, overall, I was like, what is this movie about? Is she at some point going to get better at one of these things? And then, and then they introduce the the real story that the, the poisoning. I've I've seen this movie before, and I think I referenced it uh, either on Patreon or on one of our recordings. Like, this is a civil action, the Julia Roberts version. And uh, yes, I I don't know how a civil action did money wise, uh, but I know it didn't get anybody an Oscar. <laughs> And it's a, it's kind of a shame because without really going into details, like I know that a civil action is ends with like the, the worst case scenario of what Albert Finney thought could happen, right? At some point in the movie, he's like, they're gonna bury us in paperwork and there's a good chance I'll end up bankrupt. And from what I remember, that's how a civil action goes. And when it was over, I was like, that tracks. That that feels like what would happen in real life. You know, you can have the best of intentions, but if you're a small firm and you go up against a, a big corporation, odds are that you're going to get your ass handed to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie, which allegedly is 98% true, I mean, it's like, it's a fairy tale. Do you, did you at any point believe that, that Julia Roberts had a chance to, to win this battle? No. Especially the way she, like, talks to her coworkers and whatnot for having... No real grounds for having a job there. Uh, I mean, I knew she would because it's a movie and, you know, allegedly based on a true story. I don't think they'd make a true story where she just kind of gets a little, you know, it's over in 40 <laughs> minutes. She gets kind of a little ways down the road and they're like, we'll take it from here. <laughs> or Albert Finney fires her and doesn't hire her back. We do get uh, more so than anything. Like uh, this movie's supposed to be based in 1993. Uh, but the records clerk at the water company God. is straight out of 2000. Like he's got the sharp sideburns and the uh, kind of muted color shirt. And I think he's got the, the, the chin patch, but no mustache. And uh-huh. the haircut is just, he could not have been, he's in the Dreamcast hot category of uh, Judy Greer in <laughs> what was that movie with David Schwimmer we watched? Kissing a fool? Yes. That that's when we trademarked the phrase Dreamcast hot and this uh gentleman <laughs> falls right into it. Yeah, but but unlike Judy Greer, uh he's not like he's not on that level of acting. He he brought well, the acting from a few are, but yeah. <laughs> yes. This is like looks aside, this is just out of a sitcom, like a nineties sitcom, you know, with a laugh track and, and everything. Like it, it it's this cast, it may not be the all-star cast that uh, Sober usually has in his movies now, but but they're all like acting circles around this guy. And he comes back. He's not even like for one scene. They bring him back for like three other scenes. Yeah, he's a reoccurring character. Uh, Jamie. Jamie Harold is the gentleman's name playing Scott, which is also just a, a perfect turn of the millennium name for that look. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Soul Patch, Sharp Sideburns little shaggy on top it's uh he's he's definitely ready for an independent film festival in like boston in 2000 
Do you think uh, he got invited to the Oscars? Did he get to go? I doubt it. It was a crowded, <laughs> crowded field that year. They had to. The little boy from Gladiator had seven uh, plus ones. <laughs> Uh, this is a, a trailer moment, by the way, when uh, Julia Roberts just shows him the cleavage. I don't know if you ever saw the the M. Rockovich trailer. I don't know if you saw it and remember it, but I remember a few things. One is the, the moment where she shows her cleavage. Another one is when she goes, they're called boobs, Ed. Actually, they're probably cut like back to back, like mm-hmm. her showing the cleavage and then back to cut into a they're called boobs, Ed. And then. The the big trailer moment is when she her first interaction with uh, Aaron Eckert when she's like let me give you all my numbers and you know goes on a rant a five minute rant about her different uh, the different numbers in her life as a uh, from the beginning an Oscar winner in the making from the trailer. What makes you think you can just walk in there and find uh, what we need? They're called boobs, Ed. Aaron begins digging into the case and finds evidence that the groundwater in Hinkley is seriously contaminated with carcinogenic hexavalent chromium, but PG&E has been telling Hinkley residents that they use a safer form of chromium. After several days away from the office doing her research, she is fired by Ed until he realizes that she's been working this entire time and sees what she's found out. So she's off doing her own like independent research comes back and her desk is packed up and she gets fired and she goes on this like curse laden diatribe motherfucking (laughs) everyone in the office and my note says like does she expect this to work you know she didn't even have any qualifications for getting a job there and now she's telling everyone to pack sand but it does because she immediately gets her job back i just guarantee there was a crop of young women that saw this movie in 2000 and thought this would work at their job and got fired and had a hard time finding work afterwards because when they called to check her previous employment, they're like, yeah, she just called me a son of a bitch and, you know, told me to go fuck myself and left. And uh, that that's not how we do business here at Chili's. How do you think that the real Ed feels about his portrayal in this movie? Because Aaron wins every battle against Sam against anybody just by you know chewing them out talking back completely disregarding how they feel or what they want and uh, on the other side of the spectrum Ed is just like a pushover can't keep his office organized I don't know how he keeps it there's a point in the movie where he has a speech saying I've earned this you know I've, I've managed to put away a million dollars in savings I'm like how <laughs> He seems like his office is falling apart from the moment that, that Julia Roberts walks in. He wears the same I, shirt the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> he can't even like do his tie. She has to do the tie for him. What's what's the deal? Like the does the the real Ed, did he get a say in the script the way that clearly Aaron Brockovich did? Like we never we never even see his wife, you know? Do you think that Ed was like, hey, can you can you at least cast I don't know, who was uh, Mr. Freeze's wife in Batman and Robin? Ella McPherson? Yes. Yeah. Ellie McPherson? Yeah. Yeah. Can you cast Ellie McPherson? Just a cameo on the other side of the phone? Just give me something. Julia Roberts is getting everything. She got Aaron Eckert. She gets all the good lines. She gets all the Oscar speeches. Nothing. This this dude, like, if I was if I was Ed, I mean, I guess he made a lot of money, so it doesn't really matter. But <laughs> I would like to know. Uh, I hope he's in the commentary. So life temporarily sucks because she doesn't have her job back quite yet. Uh, because Aaron Eckhart kisses her at her lowest moment, and then they end up having sex after she gives this big spiel about, you know, I could have been someone, a contender, that shit, and she used to be a beauty pageant. And And then he goes for the kill. That's one of my favorite moments in uh, Blades of Glory is when uh, Pam, what's Jenna Fisher, tells uh, John Heater the story about how both of her parents were killed in a car wreck and he takes that as the cue to go in for a kiss and that's <laughs> basically what this is here uh, my note says classy classy two-faced classy but it works she it said does. she said it wasn't going to get him late and it did so she's hooked now uh, but she's back to work the case begins unraveling like we said the water causes illness uh, she continues her research and over time visits many Hinkley residents and wins their trust. She finds many cases of tumors and other medical problems in Hinkley. 
Everyone has been treated by PG&E's doctors and thinks the cluster of causes is just a coincidence uh, unrelated to the safe chromium. Now, I I don't know if this was intentional, but they definitely painted the fine folks of Hinkley as uh, a bunch of fucking morons. <laughs> they don't talk to each other. That was my takeaway. It's like all your it neighbors mind their own business. <laughs> yeah, all your neighbors are as sick as you are, but uh, you know it's just a coincidence. Even and you don't think that it's kind of suspicious when the the people that are trying to buy your house offer to pay for your medical expenses. <laughs> what the hell? It's a, it's it's all levels of pony in in that town. <laughs> the lock they have to put on the uh, water spouts. The little cage, so people don't wrap their mouth around it. That's uh, that's what Hinkley is. They all they all go, to, all go eat at Ponch Burger, but no one talks to themselves. <laughs> the Jensen's claim for compensation grows into a major class action lawsuit, but the direct evidence only relates to PG&E's Hinkley plant, not to senior management. They meet initially with David Foyle, played by T.J. Thine who's like an errand boy that's sent by PG&E to offer them $250,000. Mm-hmm. My note just said, what is that hair? Because <laughs> I don't remember anything looking like this in 93, in 2000, or even today. He's like got like a bowl of noodles on top of his head, but also parted <laughs> to the side. Do you think it's it's just that that was the, the hair makeup department following Soderbergh's direction? I'm like. This guy, we can't take him seriously. So just do what you just can. Just have fun with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy's supposed to be a fucking goon that no one believes. So just, you know, go nuts. Yeah, th- this is the scene that finally gets uh, uh, Albert Finney to to break, to really cuss and just throw a tantrum. So so this guy needs to look like a real asshole. <laughs> Make sure. That well, this is, yeah, this is what becomes their bonding moment. They tell each other to go fuck themselves. Fuck you. No, fuck you. And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> You hear the envelope ripping open. <laughs> Albert Feeney, get your ass down here. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they, they bond. She goes back home. My note says now Two-Face is dressed like a deadhead because he's not dressed like a biker or leather daddy anymore. He's just dressed like a fucking like he's in widespread panic or some shit. He's in a jam band, uh, you know, one step away from. John Cusack yelling, get your patchouli stink out of my store, Adam. <laughs> there is a there is a very serious, not to take away from the obvious tragedy of what's happening in this town, but but there is a quieter, just a sad story. And that is the that's Aaron Eckers slow descent into just depression and, and just uh, losing his identity. Right. He used to be a cool motorcycle guy and now he's become for lack of a better word like julie roberts's bitch domesticated yeah but there is a there's a shot where he like longingly looks at other motorcycle riders (laughs) just right past brother i laughed so fucking hard that's one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life we're gonna get to that in just a minute so uh keep that in mind um we get uh, what I greatly assume was Albert Finney's Oscar clip where you made allusion to it a bit earlier. She says, I work hard. And he retorts with this big speech about I work hard and goes, and, you know, down the list of all the things that he's accomplished in his career. I, you have to believe that was his. I do specifically remember what Julia Roberts scene was. Uh, it comes towards the end of the movie. Uh, did he, Wait, was he nominated or are you talking about like this was his for, for your consideration? <laughs> See. No, he, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He was? Holy shit. Yeah. Shallow field that, that year. Not really, which is kind of, we'll go down the contenders when we get to, to the second half, and I think you'll be surprised, because I was. Yeah, like, we all love Albert Finney. He's he's big fish, but, I mean, come on, man. Don't tell me. I haven't earned the right to stop, take a breath, and enjoy life. And what the hell do you know about any of this anyway? Huh? This is fine. It, and yeah, he does get a good speech. I wonder if that's like the one bit that the, the real Ed slipped in. I'm like, all right, guys, can you just at least give him this speech? Can he talk about my uh, my quadruple bypass or whatever it is that he had? Uh, did, you, did you feel... How do you feel about this partnership? This, this Ed-Aaron partnership do you think he's too patient i'm sure the dynamic between the two in real life was fairly interesting and way more 
boss employee than this because uh, they make this like the odd couple and also like she calls the shots, which I mean, it's a movie, so we got to. But uh, it's a bit too shtick for me at parts. Like right. they, they were one step away from her taking him out to like, this is how you eat a hot dog or, you know, you got you to put <laughs> you got to put chili and cheese on it. <laughs> Much like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac, she receives a threatening phone call telling her to get off the case and she's going down. She's dealing with the wrong people and her work at this point, too is taking over so she's missing her kids grow up aaron eckhart's basically what's even his name george he he's basically raising she's missing uh her baby speaking and you know her sons become resentful of the work that she's doing and so she's missing life pass her by it's uh the plight of miss aaron brockovich she organizes she's missing all those uh all those harley davidson monopoly nights she is uh she organizes like a neighborhood picnic where her and ed hand out a bunch of literature on the lawsuit and what they're working towards my note just says bob in all caps because tracy walter of bob fame from batman and also a thousand other movies uh appears he's very ominous though we don't really figure out what his character is until the end but tracy walter is on the scene i thought it was fisher stevens until we got a good look at him <laughs> towards the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, that is not Fisher Stevens at all. Uh, I'm glad that you just reminded me where I know him from. Batman. Yeah. Bob Gunn. <laughs> Bob shred these documents. The most relatable moment of Aaron Eckhart in the entire movie comes here, though, where he walks up and he just goes, well, I'm bored. <laughs> he says that to Aaron, she, you know, let's go home. And she's fixing to. But That's then a, that was that was not him acting. That was just like a B-roll. It was him going up to Julia Roberts for like, I'm bored. <laughs> My character doesn't do anything. He had to be in full wardrobe for like five hours just to be in background of that scene. He was like, fuck this. <laughs> like, you know how much money I'm going to make in <laughs> eight years? Uh, so they're about to leave and, you know, have a good family day. But then she gets distracted by someone who's there with more information. And this is where we find my note says, LOL, pensive Eckhart. Um <laughs> He's like carrying the baby and then he hears kind of in the distance some motorcycles roaring and he looks out and it's like this motorcycle gang and he's he misses the boys and he's just like <laughs> he's looking out like what has my life become and he's longing for the days of you know yesteryear with him and his motorcycle and when he wasn't domesticated the the way it is shot it's so, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen, especially just the way like the look on his face, the way he plays it. It's uh, bleeding into a bit of real talk here. It's so not in line with anything else that happens in the movie. I fucking lost my mind, dude. I laughed so hard. Do you think that's Soderbergh throwing Eckhart the bone? I'm like, all right, I'm going to give you this one moment where where you can act. And then Eckhart. I mean, I don't know if he could have done it any better, but <laughs> he gives up the one moment where like not even fucking <laughs> Marlon Brando could have pulled it off. <laughs> yeah, there's I mean, you can't you have to give him a little bit more help, right? Like that should be when he goes and breaks up with Aaron. At least make it count that way. Don't let us like don't let that 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 look marinate for several <laughs> scenes. Instead, it's like maybe we laugh, but then we stop laughing when he goes up to her and hands her the baby. I was like, you know what? I'm out of here. And you're like, all right, at least that 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 led somewhere. Knowing that PG&E could slow any settlement for years through delays and appeals, Ed takes the opportunity to arrange for disposition by binding arbitration. Uh, but a large majority of the plaintiffs must agree to this. Aaron returns to Hinckley and persuades all 634 plaintiffs to go along. While she is there, a man named Charles Embry, this is Bob, approaches her to say that he and his cousin, presumably his name was Jethro or Billy Bob. Uh, or Ethan. Ethan. <laughs> were PG&E employees. But his cousin recently died from the poisoning. The man says that he was tasked with destroying documents at PG&E. But, quote, as it turns out, I wasn't a very good employee. 
you know, this just speaks to the ineptitude of PG&E because Bob, <laughs> uh, what's the Charles Embry in this? He seems like a nice guy, but he's he probably spent too much time in the sun and, you know, maybe <laughs> drank too much of that Hinkley moonshine that, you know, <laughs> makes you go blind temporarily because he, he doesn't seem like the the sharpest knife in the drawer. No disrespect. Like I said, seems like a good guy to have a beer with at the bar. You think something of that magnitude they would task to like uh you know the college boy on the team uh, or on the the staff rather that is there the measuring kid with like the spaghetti uh, with the spaghetti hairdo yeah the guy who's there like measuring ph levels and uses words like obsequious and shit they'd be like all right hey uh jacob you know take care of this shit for us all right uh, he ends up giving Aaron the documents, which include a 1966 memo proving corporate headquarters knew that the water was contaminated with hexavalent chromium, did nothing about it, and advised the Hinkley operation to keep this secret. So during this, the case temporarily falls apart because this movie is two hours and 10 minutes long. Because this oh, movie you know, 30, 30 minutes of that, at least, is just uh, Julia Roberts going door to door talking to every single person in in, in town. She uh, went to like 50 different thrift stores and preparing for this. And she said, God damn it. We're going to see all these outfits that I picked out. <laughs> it's like how many, how many plaintiffs do they have? Like 460, 490. However many, I believe that we saw them all. Like she had a one-on-one with each, with each of them. <laughs> uh, she learns during all this that she can't have it all. She comes back home, two faces packed up and he's going to leave. <laughs> This is her Breaking Bad moment, her her Walter White, when she... No, 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 this no. The, this is about me. <laughs> yeah. When she goes like, you know what? I like the attention. Like, they take me seriously. And I'm like, oh, this entire time I thought it was about getting justice for those people. I didn't realize that it was just to stroke your ego, Aaron. Good thing that Two-Face didn't give her the, the earrings. And then she gets booted off this case, by the way, very, very temporarily, but she does. Uh, another thing I found myself like belly laughing at was i completely forgot he just lives next door (laughs) so he packs up and just like walks across the lawn and because like in the next scene or two scenes down the line uh the baby and her in her kitchen and here's motorcycle starting i was like oh my god i forgot he lives 40 feet away from them (laughs) it's like i'm gonna take this bag why does he even need that like that, get the exercise and just walk to your own dresser every day, dog. So she's she's really mean to him in this in this scene. Like, uh, do you think there's anybody in the audience that is not on his side at this point? I would hope not. But again, this right? was, um, you know, this was I am woman. Hear me roar the movie. Yeah, but even so, like I thought that this was because you know this is the 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 lowest point, I guess, right? The Her right-hand man, the person that's been supporting her, uh, leaves her, and then she is moved out of the case because she's deemed too emotional. <laughs> so the, the, this should be like the moment where you're like, all right, so this happened, and from here, she's going to learn, and she's going to, to change, right? She's going to learn to apologize. She's going to learn to be a little more uh, mindful of other people's feelings. Uh, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, this is uh, the woman who's going to take over the case. Uh, there's two people that are going to take over the case. Uh, Peter Coyote, Kurt Potter, and Teresa, uh, played by Vinay Cox. And th- this is, if I recall correctly, this was Julie Roberts' Oscar scene of um, Teresa going through her research and saying that there's holes in her research. And Julie Roberts is like, no, there's not. She's like, well, you, you, some of these don't even have phone numbers. And she's like, whose phone number do you need? And it's the whole she's mm-hmm. playing the game of cat and mouse with her to get her to say which client it is. And then she rattles off their life story, which she could have just made up off the top of her head. And they all just like <laughs> choose to believe her. Phone numbers aren't hard to make up. Eight, seven, eight, five, seven, one, two. Like you can just that's that's how easy it is. But they're Diseases all like, aren't hard to make up. either. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all in just fucking awe of her here. And uh, well, not Albert Finney, because Albert Finney then gives her the what for on, on the way to the to the car. 
And he's he's right. I mean, I didn't think that that lady was really out of line. I mean, she was she wasn't like super friendly, but then she backed off and she tried to apologize. Right? She said like, "Oh, well, you know, we started the wrong foot," and Julia Roberts was just being inflexible about it. Okay, look, I think we got off on the wrong foot here. That's all you got, lady. Two wrong feet in fucking ugly shoes. So it's it's just one of those things where I, even the movie seemed to be outlining something that that was a problem, right? And it's like this is. You can be a good person trying to do good things, but you also need to learn how to handle people. And that was her problem. And I don't think that by the end of the movie, she's learned it. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Because, she, like, jumping ahead, the end of the movie is her going off on one last big rant and profanity-laden <laughs> diatribe. But to your point, Julio, yeah, just <laughs> it seems like she's rich at the end of the movie having learned... Uh, really nothing or changed any of her ways. Uh, the judge orders PG&E to pay a settlement of around $333 million to be distributed amongst the plaintiffs. We reconnect with George, Aaron Eckhart, as Aaron takes him along to visit uh, Marge Helgenberger and explains that they're going to get $5 million. It's a touching scene. It is. And so they did, won. Did you forgive her? Did you forgive Julia Roberts the way that Aaron Eckhart forgives her in the scene? The big smile, and he's like, I get it now. Dude, no shit. His smile starts in Hinkley and ends up in fucking <laughs> Queens, New York. <laughs> and I don't think he understood that none of that money was going to him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a new Harley, man. <laughs> but they did it. And in the aftermath, there's a big new fancy office they're in. Albert the Phineas on the cover of Lawyers Weekly or whatever. Cigar aficionado. Uh, <laughs> He goes to give her her bonus check and he sets her up big time by saying the amount we agreed on, I didn't feel was appropriate. And so she, like I mentioned, goes on her one last big rant, just, you know, just short of saying he has a little dick like this type of stuff. (laughs) And then she actually looks at it and he's increased it to two million dollars. He said, that's right. I didn't think it was appropriate. So I increased it. And he said, do they teach beauty queens how to apologize? Because you suck at it. And then, I shit you not, Cheryl Crow takes us home. Every day is a winding road. Every day is a winding road, Alex. I mean, if you didn't, if that's not what you, what you've learned after watching this movie. And we get a few title cards about you know what happened, and they won, and they've had several more cases together. And every day is a winding road. That's it. Yeah. Final shot of the movie, Julia Roberts looking at us, breaking the fourth wall as she waits for somebody to open the door. No complaints. I'll look Julia Roberts in the eyes. Say, hey, what's up? It's powerful. <laughs> she's like, she's looking at you like, can I have my Oscar now? And this is where 14 or 15 year old Alex figured out that she's not going to get naked in this movie. <laughs> then when the credits started rolling, I... Somehow, I don't remember how I thought that. I just remember watching it on a little TV. And, you know, it was still a novelty because of a lot of swearing and stuff. But I somehow had it in my head that she was naked in this movie. When it was over, I was just like, huh. And today when it was over, I was like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) That's already bleeding into real talk, I feel. So uh, let's go to real talk. Take us away, Cheryl. Cheryl. 